Have you ever wondered what it's like to perform an autopsy? Ever wanted to know how accurate your favorite crime drama is? If you're brave enough, join Join us Inside the the Morgue. Welcome back to Inside the Morgue. We're your hosts, Jess and Alice. This week, we're getting into the nitty-gritty world of autopsies, and we're dissecting Crossing Jordan. We'll be debunking Season 6, Episode 8, titled Isolation. Dr. Jordan Cavanaugh is a forensic pathologist with the Boston Medical Examiner's Office, and her case-solving frequently extends beyond the autopsy table. This episode opens with a lawyer asking Jordan questions about her latest decedent in the morgue. He asked if the deceased is a child, if he died in police custody... Is he 40 with no known risk factors for sudden death? She says no to all of these questions. The lawyer then says that if she can't answer yes to at least one of these questions, then she cannot do an autopsy on the deceased. She says the detective has no medical expertise, and he says that resources are limited over the past few months. He says autopsy protocols are in place, and he simply reviews the sheets, and the doctors in the office continue to violate the criteria set in place. The lawyer says no to this autopsy. EMS said that the decedent had influenza, which is just also known as the flu. Jordan lifted up the decedent's wrist, noticing petechial hemorrhaging, which is inconsistent with the flu. So petechial hemorrhaging are just small brown or purple spots that are caused by bleeding underneath the skin, usually caused by some type of trauma. But you sometimes you see petechial hemorrhaging, um, like in hanging cases, you'll see it around the eyes or the neck. Yes, it can be very important for uh, a hanging case or a strangulation case even. Yeah, like it's definitely, we always look for that to rule out trauma. Yeah. The chief tells Jordan to move on as he leaves the morgue. Jordan rushes to catch up with him to argue about this decision. He says the petechial hemorrhaging could mean a low platelet count, high cortisone levels, etc. Jordan says that it's their job to determine the actual cause of death, which like, yeah, it's literally their job. Right on, yeah. (laughs) Literally. (laughs) She's just defining their job. (laughs) The decedent's name is Diego Gonzalez, and his wife arrives at the office clearly upset. The wife said that her husband was healthy his whole life, and he was only sick just this morning, and she doesn't understand how he died so quickly. Jordan takes matters into her own hands to find out what happened to Mr. Gonzalez. In the next scene, we see her gowned up and ready to start the autopsy. Green flag, because she has all of her PPE on, including a gown, gloves, and a face shield. And we love PPE. We love when our docs wear PPE. It's just (laughs) such, it's the little things, really. Right, yeah. She's also wearing a mic, which I'm assuming is to help dictate her findings as she does the autopsy. I also really liked her mic. It was kind of... It was a cute little, like, subtle mic, and I it was adorable i have to ask you it made me think of like a theater mic that's what it was it was literally a theater mic like i used to wear them in my theater kid days yes we'd put them like on the side of our our face or like sometimes if you like were wearing a wig you would put it on the very top of your head i would that would have been crazy if she was wearing it like on the top of her head like in the top of her (laughs) face shield i would have loved that We should tell one of the docs that we work with that dictates his note. We should get him a little mic to put, like, on top of it. He needs a little mic instead of his recorder. (laughs) Maybe we could buy him a mic for Christmas. I was just going to say (laughs) We'll get him a little theater mic. He would love that. That would be so fun. So Dr. Townsend walks in on her and says that she is trying to get them all fired by doing this autopsy. Jordan is convinced there is something more than the flu since Gonzalez was only sick that morning. However, if there is an underlying issue, the flu or cold could kill fast. Detective Woody also walks into the autopsy room just as Jordan cuts the decedent. As soon as she makes her first cut, yellow liquid gushes out of the body. 
and major, major red flag just for the way she's holding this scalpel. She is like hand clenched, white knuckling, fist gripping it like a toddler holding a crayon when they're like aggressively coloring. Yes, that is absolutely right and the way yeah so when she like stabbed into the stomach basically it's like how you imagine a water balloon popping it gushed up it and was out. crazy and it, but it made me think the yellow liquid itself made me think back to at my old job at the body donation center place we were doing a procurement one day and i remember it was a really this case isn't similar to this uh, episode case at all, but just the fact that there was yellow liquid made me think of this. Mm -hmm. We had a donor, and he was very jaundiced, which you get from diseased liver and, like, liver cancer, and your body just has this buildup of yellow jaundice juice inside you, and it fills, like, your entire abdomen, and I remember my manager and I, we were in the procurement bay doing the procurement, Mm -hmm. and she was wearing white sneakers, and we forgot to put on booties, and she sliced into the abdomen and yellow liquid just started gushing oh, out, no. like f- overflowing over the table, on all over the floor, oh. and her white shoes were no longer white. They were very yellow. <laughs> That's so bad. It reminded me of a similar story, and it was actually... Jesse were there for this because it was when I first started doing autopsies with you and it was one of my I was early on when I first started we went to all right guys we're gonna get graphic here but this is an inside the morgue pod so it's time to get graphic at this point (laughs) it's time to get graphic we were cutting the ribs off to take off the chest plate and you let me do one side of the chest and I went to clip and as soon as I clipped like liquid just started pouring out of the chest cavity and I looked at you I was like did I did I do something wrong and you're like nope (laughs) he just has pleural fluid and pleural fluid is just like fluid in the chest cavity and for clarity when we say clip we have these giant like they're hedge trimmers basically and we use those to cut the rib cage off yeah they freak people out sometimes when we say that but yes I do remember that your first it was like your first or second day yeah And I didn't have, so (laughs) Jess and I, for situations like this, uh, I also, I copied Jess, like literally the day that this happened, I bought these. They're called sloggers, and they're just like these rubber shoes. They're little rain booties. Yeah, people wear them for gardening and stuff, because they're easy to hose off, and we wear them for our job, because they're easy to hose off. wipe off. (laughs) And I saw you wearing them, and I was wearing just old sneakers that day, and I remember thinking... I don't think I got any of the liquid on my shoes, but I just remember thinking, wow, Jess is so smart for wearing like rubber shoes that are easy to clean. I'm going to buy some. <laughs> I bet my manager wishes that she had those. I know. I bet so too. <laughs> so back to the show, we jump to the middle of the autopsy and see the chest of the decedent opened and everyone is wearing PAPRS and gowns in the room. PAPRS is an acronym for Powered Air Purifying Respirators. They look like giant space helmets and they help reduce aerosol concentrations being inhaled and it's a battery operated full face shield with a breathing tube and particulate filters. Jess and I only wear papers in the morgue if we're dealing with a high volume of formalin since it's such a strong chemical. So some of the samples that we have are preserved in formalin in like stock jars and after a certain amount of time if we have to dispose of them we'll wear the papers as we're disposing of these chemicals. Also if a body comes into the morgue and it's already embalmed and for some reason we need to do an autopsy on it we'll wear the papers because That's a lot of strong chemicals to be just inhaling. Yeah, yes, also that. So Jordan goes to leave the autopsy room, taking off her PPE before she actually leaves the room and putting it in a red biohazard bin. In the autopsy room are now two other doctors, 
not autopsy technicians. So red flag for this, pathologists or doctors typically do not assist on autopsy cases, maybe because this was like an emergency case, I guess. They didn't know what was going on, but still. Giving them a huge thumbs down. Where are the autopsy techs? We just want autopsy I want representation. Is that too much to ask? (laughs) Let's just make our own show, and it's from the point of view of the autopsy technicians. It's a more just solely autopsy techs. There's no docs. We're going to turn this podcast into a TV show, is what we're going to do. It's going to be called Inside the Morgue, (laughs) and it's going to be an autopsy autopsy tech show inside the minds of jess and alice it's autopsies and bob's burgers it's all that's going on yes <laughs> that's what plays in my mind all day literally just my personality just described <laughs> in a sentence <laughs> In our morgue, there is one lead pathologist on a case and one to two autopsy technicians assisting in the room. So it's concluded that Gonzalez died of a pulmonary edema. Pulmonary refers to something to do with the lungs, and edema means a buildup of fluid, so fluid in the lungs. He essentially drowned from all the plasma that was in his lungs. Green flag for this cause of death. So pulmonary edema is a dangerous and sometimes fatal condition. Individuals with pulmonary edema struggle to get enough oxygen because their lungs start to fill with fluid. The small air sacs in your lungs that are called alveoli are normally supposed to fill up with air as you breathe. Individuals with pulmonary edema have problems breathing because the alveoli are flooded. Pulmonary edema is caused by various medical conditions along with external factors that can cause pressure on the heart and the lungs. Some common examples are congestive heart failure, a heart attack, some type of lung damage, heart valve issues, and pneumonia, severe trauma, near drowning, and high altitude. This finding, however, doesn't quite make sense if Gonzalez was only feeling sick that morning. There must have been something that his wife didn't tell them, and they need to talk to her ASAP. The chief, who was against this autopsy from the beginning, but considering the fact that Jordan does not know what caused the pulmonary edema and the little information that they had on the case, he asks if they eliminated toxins as a cause. Bug, the other doc in the autopsy room working on Gonzalez, says that the cause is not toxins, not anthrax, or any other type of bacterium. They have now moved on to trying to eliminate viruses. Gonzalez's lungs are firm and heavy, and cutting them is like cutting into a steak, they say. Which, me and Alice have seen some gnarly lungs while working, some cancerous, some just really dense and heavy, and that is from, like, pulmonary edema just doing its thing. Mm -hmm. The lungs lose all of their fluffiness. Yeah, that was one of the things that surprised me most, I guess, when I started doing autopsy work is how different lungs can be from person to person. Especially like when you see smoker lungs versus somebody with pneumonia. Just the way they appear, sometimes the texture, the weight, sometimes they just feel dense. Yeah. And then sometimes there's next to nothing in weight too. Yeah. It's really, it varies. The cause of the pulmonary edema could have been from a hemorrhagic disease, but the results come back from the ELISA test, which is a enzyme-linked immunoabsorbent assay test that detects and measures antibodies in your blood. The test can be used to determine if you have antibodies related to certain infectious conditions. And antibodies are proteins that your body produces in response to harmful substances called antigens. Gonzalez had hantavirus, also known as the rat disease. This disease is only contagious through rodents, usually spread through feces. Jordan and Woody uh, are now on their way to Mrs. Gonzalez's apartment when they get this news and they immediately put on their N95 masks. They get to her door and hear coughing and gasping for air. 
Woody breaks the door down, finding Mrs. Gonzalez on the bed, having difficulty breathing. Jordan rushes to her, and Woody calls out for help, and when he runs through the apartment, he sees another tenant who's also coughing and gasping for air. A little girl walks into the Gonzalez's apartment and tells Jordan that her father won't wake up. Jordan checks his pulse and sees a rat in the corner of the room. The chief gears up to go to the apartment building from the morgue with the EMS teams and the public health department. One of the public health doctors is testing the blood of everyone who's been in the building to better treat them if they're sick, and this also includes Jordan. They have to make a makeshift morgue tent due to the quarantine conditions, and Jordan is in the middle of the little girl's father's autopsy. The chest is open, and we see Jordan dissecting the lung on the cutting board, uh, which is just this cool floating cutting board. It looks like one of those like TV trays that you would have if you're having like bed and breakfast. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. She was cutting her, her lung on a bed and breakfast tray. Only someone who works in autopsies would see that and be like, oh, it makes me think of a bed and breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> or a breakfast in bed. A bed and breakfast. Breakfast in bed. Yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> His lungs are almost black from lack of oxygen. So I don't know how true that is from hantavirus. I've never dealt with anybody with hantavirus. But I know your lungs obviously do become black when you smoke. And pneumoconiosis is another lung disease that's caused from breathing in coal dust or silica or asbestos. But more and more bodies are arriving at the morgue tent, including Mrs. Gonzalez. Jordan is working inside the chest cavity of the girl's father and sees that the liver is lacerated, or also known as torn. And there's about a thousand cc's of blood in the belly. So a thousand cc, it's also known as cubic centimeters, that equals to about a quarter gallon, just for reference. So a red flag here, just because none of this looks accurate at all, it really just looks like the, some so like some of the internal organs are all of the same color, just all dark red. There's no differentiation between fat or whatever, because fat, it looks like bright yellow. That's... Another thing I tell people when they ask me what was the most shocking thing about doing my first autopsy, it's how colorful everything is. Your body is very colorful. Because I, prior to being an autopsy technician, I worked in an anatomy lab at the school I went to, and all those bodies are embalmed prior to me cutting them. So everything kind of looked like a duller color. Mm -hmm. And then I came to do autopsies, and I was like, wow. Everything Everything's is like, so bright. Everything's bright. The fat literally is bright yellow. The muscles are bright red unless there's some kind of anemia or iron deficiency. And yeah. But seriously, yeah. like you can tell a lot just from what the color is. Yes. But how this body looked, it really just looked like they got an anatomy dummies, organs, and covered all of the insides with fake blood that they got from like a Halloween store. Yeah. Definitely. But Jordan points to the bruising under the skin, which is not consistent with petechial hemorrhaging, but it is consistent with blunt impact injury. So if the organs were already compromised from the virus, they would not have been able to survive a beating. They are able to contact the mother who arrives at the tent. She was out cleaning a house and suddenly becomes short of breath as the day went on. The woman whose house she was cleaning dropped her off, and she also has petechial hemorrhaging on her wrist, just like Mr. Gonzalez. But she was never near the building, and she lives across town. So it seems like this disease is spreading person to person, which is weird because hantavirus does not do that but it appears to be spreading like a cold. The chief says that they need to issue a lockdown. The chief, Townsend, and Bug are going to work the autopsies three at a time, and they're going to start pulling trace, including looking at ticket stubs and receipts, looking for spores and pollen under the microscope. Jordan is at the scene, getting histories of the decedents and building tenants. She learns that some of the infected individuals went to a bodega yesterday morning, and Detective Woody learns the name of the man who beat the girl's father. 
Townsend and Jordan are on a call with each other, going over information they've gathered. She is looking at the papers in front of her, trying to find info on a Larry Green when she suddenly becomes dizzy and disoriented. Red flag here. So she's wearing an isolation gown and gloves, which we do say we love our PPE. But then she's touching her face and her eyes with her dirty gloves. We love PPE to an extent, but you're a doctor. Come on. Don't touch your face. Don't touch... (laughs) Anything. You don't. You're in a virus-filled tent, and you don't know what you've been touching all day. Mm-mm. Yeah, who knows what those gloves have touched? Considering they're in a literal virus outbreak. Yeah. So yeah, just FYI, we love our PPE, but we don't love touching your face with dirty gloves. So Townsend is creating a virus transmission tree to identify where and who the virus spread to. Bug walks in, saying the public health has been trapping and testing the rodents from the apartment building and surrounding area, but none of the rodents have hantavirus. So if they can't find the source, there's no way to contain the virus. Jordan is becoming more and more disoriented in the tent, and Woody found out that the man who beat the girl's father brings undocumented immigrants over the border and that he is always around the building even though he doesn't live there. Woody is planning on going back to the sealed off apartment building since it's a crime scene to see if he can find any more information inside. He does find some paperwork in the Gonzalez's apartment from a repair company and this could be important in finding the killer or the suspect. Back in the morgue, Townsend found an article from the CDC about hantavirus spreading in Argentina three weeks ago like it is now spreading here in Boston. That's suspicious. So if Gonzalez hadn't been out of the country in 20 years, he got the virus from someone else who must have died before him. The chief now wants to examine everybody who hasn't been autopsied in the morgue from the last week. Because remember, they had all these new criteria in place from the beginning, so less people were getting full autopsies, so they might have missed something. So they do an autopsy on a John Doe who was found outside and EMS thought was a transient male who died of exposure. So because of the lawyer's criteria, he did not get an autopsy and has been in the morgue cooler for about a week now. Turns out he died of hantavirus pulmonary syndrome. They print his ID photo from the autopsy and Jordan shows it to everyone in the morgue tent to see if they've seen this man before and know anything about his whereabouts before he died. So this is a green flag here because we do take ID photos. During the external exam part of the autopsy, which is the beginning, Jess or I will take what we call an ID shot, which is just a photo of the decedent's face. We will typically lay out a blue chuck or it's a medical pad that's just a clean blue background underneath the decedent's head so we have like a clean uniform background for the photo we also clean the decedent's face if needed and we just want the id photo to look clean and presentable just in case we do have to show it to family or to anyone in order to identify the decedent like how they did in the show it's basically like we're recreating like a licensed photo yeah that's the goal is to look as crisp and professional as a licensed photo. The man in the show came from Mexico 10 days ago, already sick, and his sister, who is currently sick in the morgue tent, said she was afraid since she is also undocumented and didn't want to tell anybody about her brother. The brother had been brought across the border, and the same person could have infected both the brother and Mr. Gonzalez if this person was an asymptomatic carrier. Woody found out the killer's identity, and he's also the one who's been infecting everyone, and he works for the same repair company that was doing uh, repairs on the building recently. As Woody is getting the vaccine, scene for the virus the little girl sees the man who beat her father. The man runs and Woody chases him down to arrest him. Jordan, back in the morgue, notices that her right hand has been shaking and does not appear to have any feeling in it. So she does an MRI scan on herself and discovers an angioma in her brain. She has headaches, dizziness, and weakness on her right side. The chief looks at the scans and asks what this patient died of. And Jordan, not wanting to confess that the scans are hers, says that she doesn't know yet. And I'm sure this ending of the episode leads to a whirlwind of events. 
for the coming season of Crossing Jordan, because that's crazy. The show definitely has to have more autopsy episodes that I'm sure we'll cover later on, because it's... Oh, definitely. It's a show about a forensic pathologist, so why wouldn't we? Exactly. Although we do need a show about autopsy techs. We need to find a show specifically about autopsy technicians. I'm pushing for it. Hollywood, call us. We have an idea. (laughs) (laughs) So this episode dealt with a disease that was spread via an asymptomatic carrier. So we thought it would be fitting to discuss probably the most notorious asymptomatic carrier this week, Typhoid Mary. They even referenced her in this episode. We got our information on Typhoid Mary from a Britannica.com article titled Typhoid Mary. Typhoid Mary's actual name was Mary Malone, and she was infamous for being an asymptomatic typhoid carrier who allegedly led to multiple outbreaks of typhoid fever. Mary immigrated to the U.S. in 1883 from Ireland and worked as a cook. How Mary became a carrier of typhoid fever is unknown, but from 1900 to 1907, around two dozen people became ill with typhoid fever in households in New York and Long Island where she worked. The people of the household would become sick right around the time that Mary started working for them, but by the time they traced the source, Mary would have been gone. In 1906, Mary was working on Oyster Bay, Long Island, and six out of 11 people in the home became sick. The owner of the home ended up hiring an NYC Department of Health sanitary engineer. Is that still a job? I I was so curious to know if that's still a job. It probably that's a very, is. That is a very specific title. Sanitary engineer. Hold on, wait. I'm Googling it really quick. Let me know. Sanitary engineer. So the sanitary engineer, his name was George Soper, and he was investigating. Soper, along with other investigators, concluded that the outbreak had been caused by contaminated water. So Mary continued working as a cook, moving to various households in the area until 1907, when she was working in a Park Avenue home in Manhattan. An outbreak of typhoid in that household resulted in the death of one of the residents, and Soper came back to investigate and question Mary. He was then able to link all 22 cases of typhoid recorded in NYC and Long Island back to her. Mary ended up fleeing, not knowing that she was the cause of the outbreak because she didn't feel sick at all. Soper and other law enforcement eventually caught up with her and committed Mary to an isolation center in North Brother Island in the Bronx. She was eventually released in 1910 under the condition that she would never accept employment that involved handling food, which I think is hilarious. They're basically like, you can't do what you love, sorry. They're like, just don't touch anything. (laughs) Stop cooking. Stop it. (laughs) Mary. However, four years later, Soper was investigating another typhoid outbreak that occurred at a sanatorium in Newfoundland, New Jersey, and a Sloan Maternity Hospital in Manhattan. And guess who was the cook at both of those places? Was it Mary? None other than Mary Malone. It was Mary. Mary was found at a suburban home in Westchester, New York, and was again returned to isolation in North Brother Island, where she stayed for the rest of her life. Oh my god. I kind of feel bad (laughs) for her, but like, come on. She just wanted to cook. They asked her to do, like, to not do one thing, and then she goes and only does that (laughs) one thing. She died in 1932 due to complications of a paralytic stroke. In total, 51 cases of typhoid and three deaths were attributed to Mary, with countless others indirectly attributed to her, although she herself was immune to typhoid bacillus. I know I'm probably, I just know the basics of it. You found this true crime and you were like so excited to talk about it. Typhoid (laughs) Mary is just, I can't like, I can't get over the pack that the fact that they're like, all right, we're going to let you out, but just don't cook anymore. And she's like, okay. And then she's like, all right, I won't do it. I'm just thinking about it. I'm just thinking about (laughs) it. I'm not going to do it. I did it. I did it. (laughs) 
Oh my god. And also I googled it. Sanitary engineer is still a job. I'm just dumb. It's just a public he- it's like a public health worker, like a public health engineer or wastewater engineer. Oh. It's the application of engineering methods to improve sanitation of human communities, primarily providing the removal and disposal of human waste in addition to supplying safe, portable water. Well that makes sense. It does. I just don't know why like You know, that does sound like a very important job. <laughs> I know. <laughs> for somebody I, out there, not me. Not an engineer <laughs> by any means. Just like the ti- the job title sounded interesting, and it is interesting. But I guess I should figure that there are people out there that work in public health and <laughs> maintaining sanitation of water, like obviously, and also help us not have virus outbreaks. Well, that is the end of our episode. We tallied a total of three green flags and four red flags. So in our opinion, Crossing Jordan does not pass in terms of forensic accuracy. If you enjoy our podcast, share it with friends, family, and coworkers. We'd love to grow our platform on here. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at InsideTheMorguePod or Twitter at InsideTheMorgue and DM us with any show suggestions. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week with a brand new dissection. Bye! Bye.